The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Our scripture reading for this morning is in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4. If you don't have your own copy of scripture, you can find one under the seat in the row ahead of you. And if you're using that black Bible, it's on page 803. Once again, Luke 1, 1 through 4. If you can stand, please, for the reading of God's word. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, with that scripture reading by not Don Bartolozzi, um, so it begins. We have launched into the Gospel of Luke, and I hope you are excited for this gospel. The last gospel we did was probably, I don't know, three, four, five years ago or so. By now, um, we worked through uh, uh, the gospel written by Mark. And so, as you're going to hear in a little bit, what we're doing is basically swinging to the extremes. Mark's gospel is the shortest of the gospels. Um, If you remember, Mark's gospel is uh, marked by his favorite word. You guys remember what that was? It was the word immediately. It was immediately this, immediately that. It was just like it was a dead sprint, like a hundred-yard dash through the life of Christ to get up to the end of Christ's life. And then he cranks it way down. Well, on the opposite end of the spectrum is actually Luke's gospel. Um, his is the longest of the Gospels by content, and so we are going to, to be in Luke's uh, good Gospel uh, for, for a little while. The sermon title this morning um, comes out of uh, Luke's prologue here, these four verses, and we're just going to simply title our sermon this morning, Certain Assurance, Certain Assurance. And the main idea that you really find there in verse 4 in particular is this, is that Luke's audience those he originally wrote to, namely being a single person, Theophilus. But as you're going to hear in a little bit, it goes to Theophilus and then through him out to anyone else who would be reading it, basically many other Theophiluses of the world. He wants his audience, me, you, Theophilus, to grow in certainty, to have a certain kind of assurance about what has been fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ. What's unique about Luke's gospel is that his is one that comes with a very formal prologue. It's a four-verse introduction. John's gospel has an introductory type setup, but not quite like what Luke is doing. His is the only gospel of the four that is addressed to an individual. There's a real man with a real name who really lived in a real place, and he had learn some things about Jesus. And so Luke wants him to be certain about the things he's learned about Jesus. Thus, as we're going to see here, 
He writes in a certain way so that what Theophilus has learned, he can walk away saying, not only have I heard it and learned it, but these truths have basically concretized in my soul, and I have a certain assurance that the magnificent, sometimes seemingly unbelievable words and actions of Jesus are not myth and make-believe. They are the true actions of a true man who lived in a true time and place, the namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he wants his friend Theophilus to have a certain kind of assurance. So admittedly, what we are going to have this morning, but unashamedly, what we're going to have this morning is an introductory type of sermon. We're going to set the stage, as it were. That is what Luke wants, by the way, in these first four verses. He wants you to enter in to his mind space, into his head space, so that you can know why he wrote what he wrote, how he wrote what he wrote, why he left out what he left out, and why he brought in what he brought in. All of that reasoning is found in these first four verses, in his introduction. And so his introduction means that we are having an introductory type sermon this morning, but I believe there are some things that will be food for the soul as we wade into Luke's gospel. So I'm going to hit pause. We're going to pray. We're going to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit, the Apostle Peter says, that carried this brother in Christ along to pin these words is the same Holy Spirit who's active today. It's the same Holy Spirit that lives within us if we are in Christ. So we can go and ask the Holy Spirit who carried along Luke to say, can you make these words pop off the page for me this morning? I was reminded this morning by a brother who was praying for me, and he turned my attention, oddly enough, to the Gospel of Luke. I'm not even sure he knows that Luke is what we are starting today. And he turned me to the end of Luke 19, where Jesus is cleansing the temple. And it says that as Jesus was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. It's the culminating act of Christ's ministry. He came to the place where people were like, we are sick and tired of this guy. We want to see him dead. Luke records for us that those who were conspiring to murder Christ in chapter 19, they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Hanging on his words. Beautiful word picture, right? Have you ever been hanging on anything? Gripped upon it for dear life? That's the way people were hanging on the words of Christ. And what we need this morning is not for any of us to hang upon my words. I mean, you can hang on anybody's words. But we need to be hanging on the words of Christ this morning. And that's how I'm going to pray for us. That as a mere man preaches to mere women and men, that the Holy Spirit would grip us, challenge us, shake us radically from apathy and passivity to hang as though our lives depend on it, because they do, upon the words of Christ himself. Amen? Let's pray for one another in these ways, and then we'll dive into this beautiful, beautiful prologue here. So let's pray. Lord, we sang it, and now we're going to pray it. We need you. We need you every hour. Some of us, many of us, myself, we dare to foolishly attempt life in opposition to that confession. 
thinking that there are hours and minutes of the day where, you know what, I don't know that I really need Jesus right now. And Lord, that's the fool's errand. We need you every hour. We need you this hour, right now. We need you to show up. We need you to speak. We need you to pierce our hard hearts. We need you to crack open the stony corners of our soul. We need you to bring us to the place by the power of the Holy Spirit so that our heart, our mind are hanging on the words of Christ. Take what I'm positive are familiar words for many of us and would you rinse away familiarity? Would you wash over us a newness as we consider and intake and digest the words of Christ? Would you open our eyes to see Jesus this morning? Would you open our minds to understand the scriptures this morning so that we hang on the words of him who has come back from the dead, defeating Satan, sin, and death? Use me, a mere man, to proclaim the gospel, glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name, our King, resurrected and glorious in power that we pray. Amen. Well, as is obvious, we are launching right now um, out into the, the glorious waters of Luke's gospel. Hopefully you saw some of the stuff that I was posting on Slack. There are some helps on there to help start wrapping your mind around this gospel. As I've mentioned a few times over the past couple weeks leading up to this morning, we're going to settle down into this gospel for, for some time. The way it stands now, what we're going to do is divide these 24 chapters up into 45 weeks. And believe it or not, that's actually a middle-of-the-road approach to uh, approaching Luke. Um, my aim in this number, this 45 division, is driven by my desire to strike a balanced approach to, to Luke's content. In my studies and just thinking it through and just seeing how others have approached the gospel, there were two extremes. There were some people who were like, hey, we're going to crush these 24 chapters like in 8 weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks. And I'm just like, man. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not that good. Uh, your pastor is, is not that good. You know me. You've been around long enough. I like to blow the eight, and I'm a blowhard, and so I can't, I can't condense 24 into eight. So we're not going to do that. On the other end of the spectrum, I didn't want to dice Luke's gospel too fine and miss the forest for the trees. There were some commentators, pastors, who divvied up these 24 chapters into 109, 112 sermons I was counting, like two, two plus years within Luke. And I'm like, yeah, that might be a little too fine. Um, of doing that, because after all, we're going to see this morning, uh, Luke does have a theme. And what I want us to do is not go so big that we see the forest, but miss the realities of the trees that we need to see about Jesus, but not get so close to the trees that we lose sight that Luke is not just merely slopping down on paper some just random biographical facts concerning a man named Jesus from Nazareth. Or just a hodgepodge of data. He's doing something so that we might read these things, learn them, and walk away. So I'm trying to go with that middle approach where we'll take chunks of scripture, but be able to move through and see that this orderly account, as it says there in verse 3, truly is an orderly account. There is order to Luke's madness, so to speak, because he's trying to lead you by hand with his words to see and learn something true about Jesus. 
So when you go into his prologue, what you're going to see is that what lies before us, as I just said in verse 3, is an orderly account of the life of Christ. It's an orderly account of how God has accomplished or fulfilled his plan of eternal redemption in and through the work of Jesus. Luke wants you, Luke wants me to see this. This is the thread, by the way, that binds Luke's 24 chapters together. He wants you to see the golden thread that weaves these 24 chapters together is that when you consider Christ, when you look at who he is and what he has done, truly all the promises of God find their fulfillment. They have been accomplished in a single man, the God-man, the Lord, Savior, Jesus, who is the Christ. This is the golden thread, and again, my middle approach to these sermons over these next multiple weeks to come. My hope is that we will not lose sight of that golden thread. So let's zoom back and what can we learn about this book? What can we learn about this book? For starters, as I said, Luke's gospel is the longest of the New Testament. Some of you might be like, well, I can count. You know, Matthew has 28 chapters. The book of Acts has 28 chapters. Luke has 24. So I think you're off to a bad start already on helping us understand Luke. Well, that's true if you're going by chapter count, but when you get down to actual word count, Luke is the longest of the Gospels. And if you know what Luke also did is he not only wrote the Gospel of Luke, but he turned around and wrote what many call the book of Acts or the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Like what did the Holy Spirit begin to do and continue to do, honestly, as Jesus ascended into heaven, this is also from the same Luke who wrote to the same Theophilus. The introductions, the prologues to Luke and Acts reveal that the same author, Luke, is writing these things. And so, if you couple the Gospel of Luke with his second volume in the New Testament, the book of Acts, this makes Luke responsible for writing more of the New Testament than anyone else. Almost one-third of the New Testament comes from the man Dr. Luke. To state the obvious, this gospel is written by Luke, who, in the grand scheme of things, we don't actually know an awful lot about. However, we do get some hints about who he is in the New Testament. We know that Luke was a Gentile. In other words, he was not Jewish, which makes his two-part contribution again unique in that his books, Luke and Acts are the only books written by a Gentile in the New Testament. All the other New Testament writers were Jewish, not Luke. Luke is a Gentile. We never see Luke's name mentioned in this gospel, but we know from history, from tradition, but also you can see some clues through his travels with the Apostle Paul that Luke is the one who wrote this book. His name does show up three other times in the New Testament, and it's always mentioned by his friend, the Apostle Paul. Luke and Paul were companions, travel buddies. If you go into Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 4, verse 14, Paul calls Luke the doctor who is dearly beloved. So he was a man of medicine, a physician, he was interested in the facts, the details, the whys. He wants to approach things in an orderly way because he sort of got that medical kind of mind. And you see, I think, the way God has wired Luke in his profession as a doctor that carries over into the way that he approached the life of Christ in writing down 
what we have for us in the Gospel of Luke. If you go to the tiny little letter that Paul wrote to Philemon, in verse 24, Paul calls Luke a fellow worker. So he's just not some ivory tower academic. He is on the ground. Dr. Luke is an evangelist. He's a missionary. He's traveling around with Paul. He's a fellow gospel worker. And then actually at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul while in prison, mourns those who have abandoned him. But he says, out of all that have abandoned me, one has not. And who was it? Luke. Luke stuck with Paul all the way through to the very end of his life. Luke alone is with me, he says. Beyond these points, you see uh, some other glimpses that you catch of Luke. If you go into the book of Acts, what you know is this. Luke is writing about Peter. He's writing about Paul, then all of a sudden you start to see this plural pronoun start to show up. We. He say, he'll say, Paul went here and we did this or we saw this. And there's multiple times in the back half of the book of Acts that the we there is Luke inserting himself into the missionary endeavors of the apostle Paul. He was traveling with him. And so you can see some a bit of an itinerary there of where he traveled and how he carried the gospel forward from Jerusalem to the ends of the world. So we can also tell, though as you look into this book, that the Greek found here in Luke is very polished. It's a very poetic, it's very beautiful. We don't always see that because we're reading a translation of the original language, but what we have here is something written by an educated man. But we also see that Luke is not just a, a doctor, an educated man, he's a theologian. And he's a historian. As a historian, what Luke does that's a little bit different from the rest of the Gospels is that he consistently gives due diligence to anchor the events of salvation history right alongside the events of world history. For instance, Luke records in chapter 3 the ministry start of John the Baptist. And if you remember the way he starts, he says this, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. So notice, this is world history, world history, world history, world history, world history. Oh, by the way, here's salvation history. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So what he's doing is he's helping us think, hey, remember that one time when Abraham Lincoln was president and he went to Gettysburg, this thing? That's that one time that this revival broke out or whatever, right? So what you're doing is going, oh, yeah, I remember that time. And I know what's going on over here in world history. I remember in high school or growing up, I, I, I just, no one ever connected those dots for me. Like when the things of God in redemption history were playing out, it's almost like it was its own little universe off to the side. World history is doing all this stuff over here. Like where's the God stuff interacting and intersecting with the world? And that's why it's good for people like Luke to come along and say, it wasn't like there was all this God stuff and then it stopped. Then all of a sudden world history stopped. No, as the world is moving along, God is the God of history who's invaded our time space capsule and he is doing his work of redemption while people like Caesar are going about and Pontius Pilate are doing what they do. God is at work then just like God is at work now 
there's going to come a time and place where we look back and say, hey, do you remember that presidency of Joe Biden when that thing happened in Springfield and the gospel went forth and someone repented and believed at Washington Street Mission and, 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 and. That's what Luke's doing. He's a historian. He knows what's going on in the world, and he also knows what's going on in the gospel. You also see that if you um, remember uh, at the beginning of uh, the birth of Jesus. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Famous Christmas verses right there, right? Well, what happened during the days of Caesar Augustus? Well, something pretty miraculous happened. The one mediator between God and men invaded our, our world in the incarnation of Christ. The culmination of redemption history took place when Caesar Augustus was doing what Caesars do there in Rome. Luke is a historian. That's what he is doing. But more than a mere historian, Luke is also a theologian. Right alongside historical events, he highlights major theological themes that magnify God's work of salvation in Jesus. And so here's just some of them. This is what you're going to get a foretaste of. Luke is trying to do something. Remember, this isn't just mere biographical data. This isn't Luke just saying, hey, I just you know, wrote down, just jotted down a few things every now and then about the guy named Jesus. So you can stick them on the shelf next to all your other historical biographies that you can just pull off the shelf every now and then and just you know, learn a few facts. There's a theme, theological themes. He wants you to learn something about God as we do this. You're going to see the theme about the importance of prayer. Jesus does this in several parables, not only in the, in the life of Jesus. Consistently, Luke is always saying Jesus stopped, desolate place, prayer. Jesus had to pull away. He needed to go to God in prayer. Jesus needed to pray, thus those who follow Jesus need to pray. You see that all throughout this gospel. You also see God's initiative in the salvation of his people, showing that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are all part of his definite plan of salvation. Luke is a gospel consistently filled up with saved words, salvation words. The only other gospel, if I'm remembering right, that uses that word salvation or to be saved is the apostle John, the gospel of John. But Luke, he's just dropping that word all over the place because he wants you to see something about Jesus. You're a sinner who needs to be saved by him. And as you're going to see, this is the very thing Luke says he came to do. And so he wants you to understand this. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is another theme that you see all throughout not only the Gospel of Luke, but carried over into the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit gets very prominent billing in the book of Acts. But it's also found in this Gospel Jesus being filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, going forth in the Spirit, starting his ministry by the Spirit. You see Simeon in the temple saying what he said in the Spirit. Zechariah giving his prophecy at the birth of his son in the Spirit. You see in the book of Acts, the church starting as the Spirit falls. I mean, the Holy Spirit is just all over the place. Luke wants us to see something. This is something a bit unique to Luke's gospel. But you also see two other themes. You see the fulfillment of prophecy is another prominent theme. That is why on the beginning of Luke's gospel, those first two chapters concerning the birth of Christ, if you just know your Old Testament, there is just prophetic fulfillment language all over the place saying all of the Old Testament funnels down into this singular person, the Lord Jesus 
Christ, everything promised finds its fulfillment in Him. And then finally, what you see in Luke's gospel, another theme from this theologian, is just Jesus' love for the lowly. Jesus' love for the lowly. Luke is concerned that his audience, you and me, should see that the good news about Jesus is not limited to the people that were valued and honored in the society of that day. That's what got the Pharisees and the religious leaders so torqued. They assumed when the Messiah had come, the Messiah would be overly excited about how religious they were, and he would be not as excited about all those sort of scrubby dirt bags that are just out there not very religious and not very holy. And Jesus shows up and actually flips the whole thing on its head. Jesus shows up and says, no, actually the gospel is yes for you because in your religion, you're hoping a religion will save you and I need you to see that you can't be saved by your religion, so you need me, but all the others that float out and about around you, it's also for them. The gospel is for those who are undervalued and for those who are deemed dishonorable. Luke consistently shows Jesus constantly interacting with those on the margins of society. You see him talking about Jesus' interaction with women, his interaction with children, his interaction with those filthy sinners, those foreigners, that is, those Gentiles, those non-Jewish men and women. As a matter of fact, one of the most clearly discernible things about Luke's account is that it was written primarily for Gentiles, for people, good news, like you and me. For anyone here who's not ethnically Jewish. If you're not ethnically Jewish, then you should perk up a little bit because Luke's gospel, he says, I'm writing this for you to see that you can be folded into the family of God according to what Jesus accomplished on the cross. So while Luke is writing to a real man, the most excellent Theophilus, which is a Greek name, by the way, so you got one Gentile writing to another Gentile about what Jesus came to accomplish on the cross. Luke is also writing through Theophilus to a broader Gentile audience that needs to know that Jesus came not only for the Jews, but Jesus came for all mankind. Luke drops that truth over and over and over and over again. Jesus is the king who rules over all creation. And he is the one who came to seek and to save the lost. Mark it down now. Luke 19.10 is the key verse that summarizes all 24 chapters of Luke. A key verse that tells us that the theme hanging over Luke's gospel is this. In fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises, Jesus alone brings salvation to the nations. The verse that supports that truth is Luke 19.10. He says of himself, I am the Son of Man who came to seek and to save the lost. So, with all of this lingering before us about the book of Luke and the man, Luke himself, what does this mean for us? That's good info to know, but what does this mean for us? What can we say about these four verses before us? It means what we got to do is we have to go and do what Luke did. We need to start from the beginning because he says that's where he started, and so we're going to start from the beginning by looking at these four 
verses. And in his prologue, what we recognize is that in the original language, these four verses are actually one long sentence, but they break down for us into four verses. And like a bricklayer who comes along and he begins to labor, laying brick after brick in order to establish and build a solid foundation, so Luke has labored to do the exact same thing, he says. But instead of bricks being laid by Luke, he is laying a foundation of certainty concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he came to accomplish. That's what's going on in these four verses. It is him saying, I want you to be certain of this. 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 I want you to grow in the fact that you have learned something about Christ. And because of the way I approached it, the sources I used, the method that I wrote for you, what you can do is do this. You can stand on it. You can bank your eternal salvation on it. You can live in the present, being guided by it. You can have the hope that when you die, you will meet Christ because you are in Him. You can have the knowledge that everything in your past has been forgiven by Him because of who He is. Be certain of these things because of what He says in the first four verses of Luke's introduction. So what are these four areas of certainty? The first is this. We can have theological certainty. That's verse 1, theological certainty. We can be certain of the theology that we're going to read about in Luke's gospel. Verse 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. That's how he starts. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Luke tells us that that's what he's writing about. Things have happened. You can't deny that. You can even go read the secular historians of that era, and they will say there was a man named Jesus, he was from Nazareth, and he was doing some stuff that we can't quite explain. Things were happening among us, he says, but what you need to know is that these things have accomplished something that has been among us. The idea behind that word accomplished in your copy of Scripture is the idea of fulfillment. As a matter of fact, some of your translations might even have that word there, the things that have been fulfilled among us. So what Luke is saying is that in the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, these matters did not merely occur. They're not just the normal happenstances, the comings and goings of just somebody who just sort of lives life. He's not saying that. These matters are actually the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament promised, and they are the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament predicted concerning salvation for sinners, God's eternal plan of redemption. He says we had a front row seat to it as these things were unfolding and unfolding and unfolding in the life of Christ during our time. So Eve's snake-crushing great-grandson that was Jesus. That was fulfilled in him. Abraham's multi-ethnic blessing. Moses' prophet like me. 
King David's royal descendant, all these things and more, what are they? They are samplings of the things accomplished among us. All of this stuff is just going, 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 and coming down to the point of Christ himself that was happening right in front of us and among us. Through his work on the cross, Jesus fulfilled the long-cherished promises of God. He's the reality behind every Old Testament shadow. If you got nothing from the book of Leviticus, hopefully you got that, yeah? He is the reality behind every Old Testament shadow. So his arrival is not unexpected because we see that in the Old Testament. His actions are not happenstance because the Old Testament tells us what the Messiah would come and do. His death is not out of the blue. His resurrection even isn't out of the blue. God himself spoke through his prophets over thousands of years in order to prepare his people for a time such as this, Luke says. And it's happened. It took place right in front of us, and we can rest with certainty that our God has kept his promises and done what he said he was going to do. This is such an important point for Luke. It seems so insignificant. You're just reading into it. You probably treat Luke's first four verses like you treat the intro to all your college books. Did anyone ever read the intro? No. Intro, intro, I don't care who this guy's thankful for. Next, come on, man. Give, give me to the stuff that I've got to read for my assignment. If you treat Luke's gospel like this, you miss one of his key points. Why? Because the point that he is making, that Theophilus and all who are like him, you can have certainty that the God who is creator and the Lord has fulfilled his promises among us. You need to know this because guess what? If you do not think God can keep his promises, you are going to lack certainty, yes? If you read the Old Testament, and many of us are insufficient, we're deficient in our understanding of the Old Testament, a lack of Old Testament understanding, says Luke, means you will probably have a lack of certainty. And his aim is to bring us along and say, see all this stuff in the Old Testament, how it was just laid out for us, that we would need a Savior, that he would come, he would invade our time-space capsule, he would speak this way, act this way, live this way, die this way, resurrect this way. What you need to know is Luke isn't reading Colossians and Romans. Those haven't been written yet. He's pulling all of this out of the Old Testament. And if we are deficient in our understanding of the Old Testament, he says you will not be very certain of what God has done in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to understand the things that have happened among us are in fulfillment of what Jesus has done. And for your own homework, you can turn over to Luke 24 and you can go into verse 44. And what you will discover is that he is so trying to get us to see these things is that he literally brackets his entire gospel with this particular truth. He starts off by saying the things that have been accomplished or the things that have been fulfilled among us, they are all centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. What are the last, some of the last words of the entire gospel of Luke? Luke 24, verse 44, Then he, Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that, listen, everything written about me in the law of Moses, everything written about me in the prophets, everything written about me in the Psalms must be, what's his word? Fulfilled. Fulfilled. So even on the lips of Jesus now, 
The giant brackets overhanging the Gospel of Luke are your Old Testament prepares you to be like this. Rock solid certain that the life and death of Jesus is not just make-believe, myth and legend. The invitation I think Luke has for us is grasp this. Be a student of the Old Testament. Get into the Leviticuses and the Numbers and the Hoseas, the Habakkuks, the Nahums. Because in it you will find the Lord Jesus. And then if you can grasp that Christ is the fulfillment of these things, you will have real confidence concerning the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Next, our certainty about what has been fulfilled in Jesus should grow because of historical authenticity. That's... Point number two, right there out of verse two, historical authenticity. So look at what he says there in verse two. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So Luke is clear from the outset that he is recording eyewitness material. He went to the people who saw and heard what Jesus was doing. So what this means is that he and Theophilus are actually second-generation Christians. Somebody saw Jesus, somebody heard Jesus, somebody came and delivered to us. That's what he says. They delivered all the stuff about Jesus from the very beginning that they saw and they heard. They came and said, you should know about Jesus. You should know that you have sinned. You should know the need to repent and find eternal life in him. Jesus, after all, came to seek and to save the lost. Luke hears this, repents and believes. Theophilus hears this, repents and believes, and says these certain truths were delivered to us. We're second-generation Christians. And what was delivered to us, he says, was what eyewitnesses and subsequently earwitnesses saw and heard from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. There were men and women with Jesus from the day of his birth. There were men and women who followed him as his disciples. If you go through Luke's gospel, if you've ever paid attention, there are attitudes of heart and there are thoughts, inner thoughts of mind that Luke records in his gospel. Have you ever wondered that? How in the world could Luke possibly know that that person was thinking this in this scenario? Either it's fanciful make-believe, and he's just sort of being a little artistic. Well, if I was in that situation, this is how I would feel. Or Luke actually went and said, when you were experiencing shepherds out in the field at night, and the angelic host of multitudes cracked the midnight sky and showed up and lit up the night sky, how did you feel? Uh, we were scared. <laughs> Writes it down. That's how you know they feared greatly. Because he went and found the shepherds and said, what were you feeling in that moment? And they said, we were a little scared. That's what he's doing. That's where his gospel comes from. Things have happened among us. Stuff concerning the fulfillment of God's promises in Christ alone. Luke records the attitudes of heart and the thoughts of mind that are going on in people's minds as these things are unfolding right in front of them as they're touching this stuff and hearing this stuff and seeing the stuff. And then what they are doing as ministers of the Word are entrusting this stuff to Luke. So just think about all the unique material surrounding the birth of Jesus in the first two chapters of the book. Have you ever wondered why he has so much unique material concerning the birth of Jesus? 
It's because he went and found the people who were involved with this stuff. And he said, what was going on there? How in the world in chapter 1, verse 25, could Luke know what Elizabeth said in the privacy of her room after conceiving her son, John? He went and found Elizabeth and he talked to her. How can Luke tell us what Mary felt at the angel's greetings when he shows up, the angel, and says, greetings, favor one, and it says she went, oh, how does he know this? He went and found Mary and he talked to her. She's an eyewitness of these things. How can Luke record Zechariah's prophecy? He wasn't there. How could he record the shepherd's fear at the angelic host? How can he record for us what the old man Simeon prayed in the temple when he scoops up the eight-day-old baby Jesus and he sings this beautiful song of how he will bring salvation to the Gentiles, to the nations? Because he went and found Simeon. He went and found Anna. He talked to the twelve. He talked to the women who were with Jesus in his ministry, he pursued eyewitness accounts. It is because Luke is dealing with eyewitness historical testimony that can be trusted. That's why we can come and say there is a measure of authenticity rooted in history. These eyewitnesses were ministers of the word who could not but speak of what they had seen and heard. These are the sources of my content, says Luke. Thus, allow my drive for historical authenticity to give you an ever-deepening certainty. Is it not good to read your Bible and know this isn't some fanciful make-believe? This isn't Harry Potter. This isn't Lord of the Rings. This isn't Star Wars. This isn't Star Trek. This isn't elves and, and dwarves, giants, unicorns. This is history rooted in theology. And the court of testimony, if you go to court and someone says, I know how insane this sounds, but I was there. I saw it with my eyes. I heard it with my ears. I touched it with my hands. That's the language of 1 John, isn't it? That's what we read earlier in our scripture reading. John says, I know this stuff about Jesus sounds insane, but I saw it, I heard it, I touched it, I walked it, I lived it, I breathed it. If that kind of testimony to walk into the Sangamon County Courthouse and sit down on the stage, the weight of that eyewitness testimony would win the day, no matter how insane it would sound. Why? Because it's eyewitness testimony. Luke is saying, I'm not making this stuff up. I was talking to those who were there. And what that does is that causes us to go, okay, we can breathe a sigh of relief and recognize we have certain assurance that what lies before us is what truly happened. Next, third, we see Luke's investigative credibility. His writings are credible. They're investigative in that he went and sought them out. This is rooted in what he said earlier, but he's going to tease this out even more. Because of what he went about and did, our certainty can also grow. The reliability of what he investigated and his method in doing so. Look at verse 3. It seemed good to me also, he says. So many have undertaken to compile narratives of the things that have been accomplished among us. 
Stuff was happening from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Eyewitnesses were there. They delivered them to us. So here's what I'm going to do. Here's my method. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some times past, and that's the key phrase there, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Luke's gospel is no passing fancy. It's not the fruit of a fertile imagination. As a historian, theologian, his is a passion for accuracy, a concern for exactness. He tells us right here in verse 3 that he took the time to investigate the story about Jesus fully. He followed all these things closely for some time past. He didn't do, in other words, what we often do when a news article comes across our Facebook feed or some other social media. We read the headline real quick, we draw a conclusion, we pass it forward, and then we go around proclaiming it to be the gospel truth. And we haven't even done the due diligence to actually click on the article to read the content of the article. Yeah? You guys ever seen that, seen that one take place out in the social media world there? I see a couple of uh, a shameful look at, <laughs> glances on our face here. Yeah, Luke is saying that's the opposite of what I did. He said, there was some stuff that people were talking about, and what I did was I did the due diligence to go at this thing for some time, following it closely. He had access, apparently, to the many narratives that have been compiled about the life of Jesus, and then he went around gathering eyewitness historical testimony. Thus, we can rest assured that his content is grounded in research of actual events. So when Luke comes to us and says, I know what this sounds like, but I'm telling you, a woman who never had sex had a baby, and that man's name is Jesus. He means that. Not because he's some ignoramus from a foregone era who believes ridiculous kind of stuff. This isn't some, some kind of historical, chronological snobbery. Yeah, people were pretty dumb back then. We're smart. We're modern. Those pre-modern people would believe in saying things like that. No, they didn't. People don't believe that that's how babies are born from the beginning of time. Everyone knows what has to happen for a baby to be born. Mary did not go through that. He says, I'm recording it down for you. Luke is a doctor after all. Yeah. Doctors know how these sorts of things work. But Dr. Luke is unashamed in saying, but that is not how Christ the King came into this world. He means it when he writes that down. When he says, a multitude of the heavenly host blasts open the midnight sky and we're singing glory to God in the highest. He says, I mean that. That is what happened. When he records that upon his baptism... The Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. He means what he says there. He said, Jesus healed many. He said, Jesus exercised power over sickness, disease, and death. He said, Jesus fed 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish. He said, Jesus transfigured for some of his disciples. He said, Jesus was crucified on a cross. And he said, Jesus resurrected from the dead. Why? Because that is what he discovered to be true, having followed all things closely for some time past. Either Luke is a phenomenal liar and is laughing in his grave at the extreme fable myth that he wove for us, and he's so happy that he's deceived millions, or, or it could just possibly be true that he wrote down what he meant because when he went and talked 
to the eyewitnesses, they were saying, I know how unbelievable this sounds, but this is what I saw. This is what I heard. This is what I touched. This is what I experienced. And I'm telling this to you. And Luke says, got it. Records it and writes it down for you and me to believe. Because of all this, Luke says, it seemed good to me to write an orderly account. What we have is the product of painstaking and thorough research so that in the end, Theophilus and all those like him might ultimately have forth gospel certainty. Gospel certainty. Verse 4. This is the purpose of Luke's gospel stated in verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. If you go and you talk to coworker or neighbor tomorrow concerning the things of Christ, what is probably one of the conversations or responses you'll get into in that conversation? What's the number one rebuttal to the things of Christ in these days? How do you know that's true? The Muslims say one thing. The Hindus say another thing. The Buddhists say one thing. The atheists say another thing. The hedonists say another thing. The relativists say another thing. The nihilists say another thing. And on and on it goes. How do you know that's true? How can you trust what Luke has down before us? How can you be so certain that the gospel is what every man or woman needs to hear and know in order to repent, believe, and be saved. The answer to those questions beyond is see Luke's gospel. So he says, that's why I wrote this gospel. Theophilus, you have been taught the things of the gospel. Theophilus is a Greek. He's coming out of a Greco-Roman world. Greek gods, Roman gods, stories, myths, fables all over the place. Now all of a sudden, Theophilus hears the gospel. He's heard some things concerning Christ. By all accounts and measures, most commentators say he is a follower of Jesus, but probably a new convert. And so the question is, how can, why this and not everything else? And Luke says, let me hold your hand and show you how you can be certain concerning the things you have been taught certain concerning Christ, certain concerning salvation in him alone, and so on, and so on, and so on. He says, come and see what I've written down before us. Because of Luke's access to these eyewitness accounts, and because of his thorough investigation into the story of Jesus, Theophilus can have concrete certitude that Jesus is the Savior who has come to offer salvation to all people from every nation. Be certain of this, certain assurance. That is what lies before us as we wade into the deeps of Luke's gospel. So what does Luke want from us, his audience? What does he want? 
What are we going to wade into over the next many months to come? I think you can answer this question in twofold. One, he wants you to believe in Jesus so that you might be saved from your sins. Some of us are here this morning, and maybe that's where we're at. You've heard about this Jesus thing. You believe in Jesus. Yeah, there was a historical guy named Jesus. Lived over in the Palestine area. I know he did some stuff. I know he taught some stuff, but I'm not quite sure that I need to trust him with my entire life. Trust him for my salvation. What you need to know is that Luke is writing in such a way so that you would just not be confirmed in the mere biographical data of Jesus. Luke is an evangelist. He's writing in such a way so that as he weaves story upon parable, parable upon story, journeys you from the birth narrative of Jesus all the way to Jesus hanging on a cross on the outskirts of the city, goes into a grave, blows up out of that grave, resurrected three days later, and then it goes so that he will ascend into heaven to sit down at the right hand of the Father. Luke is writing all this because he wants you to read it, see it, see your need for him, repent of your sin, and come place your faith in Jesus. That is what Luke wants for you. He's unashamed in it. He's unashamed in it. Two, some of us here might be followers of Jesus, so what does Luke want for us? He wants any follower of Jesus to have the same kind of certainty that was available to Theophilus. Today is a day and age where the axe is laid to the root of certainty over and over and over and over again. Is it not in the news? Is it not in your social media feeds? Is it not among the conversations and the things you read? Is it not in the workplace? Is it not in the banter talk with the neighbor? The world rages against certainty found in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's movements afoot that have fancy names that are trying to get people in some good ways, but in a lot of bad ways question, to doubt, to pitch Jesus out the window. And Luke says, I am writing for the exact opposite purpose. He wants us to come and believe and be certain of the things we have believed and been taught. Luke has put together a reliable narrative of events concerning Jesus, the Son of Man who came to seek and save the lost, and over the many weeks to come, my prayer for you and for me is that we would see Luke's twofold purpose come to pass, not only in our lives, but also in the lives of others who need to know the saving truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we've laid a foundation today based upon the works and the words that your servant has laid down before us. Would you help us, Lord Jesus? In this introductory sermon, would you help us? Those here within earshot, would you bring them to the place where curiosity having been piqued, they would make a commitment. You know, I'm going to stick this thing out. I'm going to hear and learn about the life 
of Jesus. I'm going to study. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to bring my doubts. I'm going to bring my sin, my suffering. I'm going to bring them to Jesus. I'm going to follow Luke's advice so that I listen to what he has to say. Lord, I pray that you would bring a person like that to the place of salvation, ultimately at the end of their journey of investigating. For some of us here this morning, maybe our certainty of the things concerning the gospel is weak, numb, hanging on by a thread. And I'm asking Jesus that in your kindness and in your grace, you would come and comfort those who are struggling and the things they have been taught concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, and that through the weeks to come, you would bring a certain assurance, not rooted in the words of a new pastor, but rooted in the words of the gospel. Bring us to the place where we rest ever, ever deeper on Christ our Savior. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.